with Birmingham City Council effectively declaring bankruptcy and more local authorities expected to follow, what on earth is going on with local government finance in England? What does the new uncertainty over transport policy, such as with High Speed 2, tell us about the prospects for infrastructure development in the UK and the power of local leaders to shape outcomes that work for their areas? And with Greater Manchester blazing a trail with bus franchising, why is it generating so much excitement amongst metro mayors and why has it taken so long to implement? I'm Mike Spicer and welcome to LED Confidential, the podcast that tries to lift the lid on those intractable and enduring challenges facing those of us working in and on local economic development and placemaking today. And I'm David Marlowe. Join us as we reflect on the economic development news that caught our attention over September 2023. So, Mike, I mean, after a sort of a bit of a summer silly season episode in August, we certainly had some incredible big issues to uh, get our teeth into for September. And I think we have chosen three great ones, but there are a number that we could have gravitated towards. I mean, let's start with you know, Birmingham City Council, you know, the largest English local authority um, in turnover and probably employment terms, issuing actually two Section 114 notices, which listeners may or may not know means effectively that they can't pay their bills and are, are bankrupt. This is shocking news for the city. Uh, but it is interesting for me. I, I worked for Birmingham from 1989 to 92. And it is prominent in my memories that equal pay issues, which are the issues that have sent Birmingham over the edge in 2023, were extremely live back in the early 1990s, were considered a massive risk. So I suppose the first thing to say about local government finance in England is that you know it has been on a bit of a knife edge, you know, literally for decades, or has been quite precarious. And the immediate reason for Birmingham going over the edge has been a risk that we've known about for 20, 30 years. Um, and it now sets in train a whole range of massive implications for one of England's great cities um, and for the population and for the businesses therein. I mean, what's your impression of how we've got here and where we go from here? So we have covered the issue, haven't we, before of uh, councils issuing S114 notices. If you remember, we did the episode not that long ago where we talked about Woking issuing the Section 114 notice. And it's interesting because there are peculiarities in each case. In Birmingham, you had the equal pay liabilities. In Woking, you had that amazingly expensive building that seems to have brought down the council, that uh, huge liability that became dangerous on their balance sheet as the market turned. But it seems to me that there is there is something of a common backdrop that you know, is facing many councils across the country. And we've sort of touched on it in a few places before, but one is just the dire state 
of local finance, local government finance all across the country. The figures are quite stark, really. So if you look at spending by local government in England um, since 2010, so the period in the period between 2010 and just up to the pandemic, so 2019, 2020, in real terms, um, spending by local government fell by 17.5% in real terms. But that even as drastic as that sounds um, with an aging population where you have your greater needs, particularly around adult social care, even that doesn't quite convey the scale of it because actually the transfers from central government to local government are bigger still than that. It's actually gone down by about, went down by about 40% over the same period. So huge loss of financial power there um, that only... You know, council tax rises and local taxes have only just taken the edge off it, really. Huge situation there to deal with. And of course, that that has led in many cases to you know, council taking risky decisions with investments, really trying to adopt various strategies to make good the shortfall. But it seems to me that that's the big story, David, isn't it? It's, it's actually just how precarious local government finance is across the whole sector. Uh, and we'll get these kind of stories coming up in places. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right to raise the issue of um, government financing. I mean, I'd almost take a step back from that and say, you know, the fundamentals of how we fund regional and local development needs fixing. The fundamentals need fixing. Yeah, we, we all know there's rising demand for local services. There's rising costs, particularly with the current cost of living issues. And there's very limited revenue raising powers and government finance has been squeezed. And those bits that remain, a lot of them have been hypothecated. So in a way, what do you expect? There are some fascinating dimensions to this. And um, I hope we'll get a moment to, to come on to them. I've got things to say about both Woking and Birmingham. But unless there is a root and branch reform of how regional and local services and development are financed, I think we're in a huge difficult, a huge, in huge difficulties between now and um, at least the end of the decade. And I suppose one of the things that worries me most about Birmingham, which is obviously a city that I know and love, is that the government response will not be good. You know, the, the government response to Section 114 notices normally involves sending the council into administration with inspectors or appointed by the Secretary of State to effectively run the local authority. And that seems to me to be an awful position to be in. And if you look at the recent track record, for example, I was looking in, in preparation for today's episode at Slough, a much smaller unitary council. They have been in administration with inspectors, including, as it happens, the involvement of Max Callow, who's been uh, appointed as the chief intervention officer uh, in Birmingham, 
for over 18 months. And their latest progress report is, you know, there are just tentative signs of recovery. So this is going to be a really long run issue. I suppose one of the points that I would like to make before we leave this is whether or not government itself is complicit in the Section 114 notices. Having a look at the loan book that the Public Works Loan Board has made available to local authorities that are now in Section 114 uh, dilemmas. Woking, for example, which you mentioned, is a £24 million turnover, plus or minus, local authority uh, as of the end of March 22, which is the last moment for which I've had figures on the uh, Public Works Loan Board website. They were in receipt of 100 and. 40 loans valued at something like 2.2 billion. How on earth did the Debt Management Office of Treasury loan Woking over a hundred times amounting to 2.2 billion quid for a 24 million pounds organization? Birmingham, which is the subject of our provocation, has something like 3.6 billion pounds of outstanding loans to the Public Works Loan Board. Yes, it's equal pay that has sent them over the edge. And yes, many of those loans stretch to the 2050s and are at very low interest rates. But the Treasury keeps on lending this money and then they go and appoint commissioners to secure repayment. Is this ethical and is there complicity in the system? Well, they're, they're, those, are, those are big points, aren't they? In addition to the strangeness of the lending de decisions, if we can call it that. I mean, there's there's another angle, isn't there, which is in the process of trying to put right the financial mess that, that those and other councils are, are facing, you know, we, we could be looking potentially at an asset sale as well, which could have big implications for economic development. So in the case of Birmingham, you know, we're looking potentially at um, the city council stake in the airport, there's major city centre landmarks like the city of Birmingham Library, um, which I was at um, only the other week. In fact, it's a magnificent uh, building and very much, you know, at the heart of New Birmingham, if we can call it that. That huge kind of development in and around Brindley Place, and you do worry, or I worry, that there could be some loss of control over economic development outcomes if the city council and its partners, um, like the combined authority, for instance, lose some of their ability around site assembly, around leveraging the value of, of um, assets like the library and other buildings. Um, there's a risk, isn't there, that we do see a kind of loss of control there. Well, I don't think it's a risk. I think it's a certainty because appointing inspectors to run the authority and, as I mentioned about Slough, for two, three, maybe even more years, particularly for an authority of the complexity and scale of Birmingham, um, is the antithesis of what you'd want a confident local authority to be doing as we move through the 2020s and face all the challenges that we speak about so regularly in LED Confidential. And I suppose before we do leave this topic, we should just at least think a little bit about where local economic development and placemaking plays in these sorts of situations. I mean, the first point I would make is surely we have to revisit the statutory basis 
for LED and placemaking so that inspectors can't come in and just absolutely close down the whole service and set back a place for a generation. I mean, secondly, we mentioned this in the uh, in our first pass of the topic. Surely, we've got to look at revenue sources again and business rates, council tax, and the other ways that funding for LED and placemaking can be safeguarded in periods like this. And thirdly, I suppose LED practitioners you know, do have to be as good as we can be at generating income and economic activity you know, in a city which is suffering from um, you know, financial meltdown almost in the local authority. Well, spe- speaking of Birmingham, I, f- I feel that this is a, a nice segue onto our next topic. Um, at the time of recording this podcast, uh, there was still some uncertainty about the future of um, High Speed 2, specifically the Phase 2A and B of High Speed 2, which is the stretch of track between Birmingham and the northwest of England, so from Birmingham to Crewe and then from Crewe to Manchester. And I have no idea, David, whether by the time this podcast episode goes out, we'll know any more. Um, we could still potentially be in the dark about what the plans are around that. Um, or before we've even stopped recording this episode, there may be clarity. Who on earth knows um, what's going on? But I wanted to include this as a provocation, partly out of a selfish interest of, of course, having spent a number of, of years in roles that involved campaigning in support of high speed to when other points in it in its history it looked like it might be uh, cut back um so it's, it's it's a project that's quite close to my heart it's quite symbolic isn't it of the country's commitment to try and change economic outcomes through investing large amounts of money in connectivity if something happens to high speed to it raises all sorts of questions about our ability to deliver other such projects, and indeed at the cost at which we'd be able to deliver them if uh, suppliers, investors demand a higher risk premium, which I, I might venture they almost certainly will. Well, not almost certainly, they will. And there's no question of that at all. Um, what are your thoughts on it, David? The project and, and what it, what all of this chaos says about us um, as a country and its ability to deliver economic development on a strategic scale across regions. It doesn't say very much positive about us, and it is sort of quite indicative of so much that is going on in the UK and England at the moment. I mean, it is incredibly sad that HS2 has been scaled back, scaled back, scaled back, you know, from a massive national project to you know, if the rumours are correct, um, what, funnily enough, I wrote about back in 2010, which was that, you know, the principal impact of HS2 would be to connect Birmingham and, you know, the Birmingham Airport Solihull area into the greater southeast. And, you know, if that is indeed the decision that government is making, um, a Sadly, I'd take no pride in it. I will have been shown to have been right back in 2010. But B, what a comment on the difficulties that the UK has in 
genuinely transformative infrastructure delivery. And that has to play in any global business audience in a way that can't be good for the sort of places that you and I love and work for and work with. It's just been really, really sad. And, and you know, you, you hear the rumours about, well, it's going to be from Old Oak Common to Curzon Street, you know, so not from the centre of London and not to the main Birmingham interchange. There are land purchases throughout the country that were purchased for HS2 that are currently blighted because we don't know what's happening with the project. And meanwhile, I mean, I did look in, in preparation for today. You know, China, in the time since I wrote my piece back in 2010, China's added 25,000 kilometers of high-speed rail. Um, you know, Spain's done Madrid to Valencia. Uh, France has completed the Paris to Bordeaux and Paris to Brittany high-speed rails. What is wrong with us? And I suppose the second part of your provocation, which is plum LED confidential territory, is what local powers and resources do leadership teams need to make the most of transformational infrastructure and services going forward? You know, it does seem to me that it comes back to this really big issue, almost the constitutional issue of the remit of subnational tiers of government to influence and deliver change in their areas. And I think both of us do recognise that for HS2 in its original manifestation, you know, that, that had to be a national programme or project. But if national government is incapable of delivering it, where does that leave local leadership teams and what powers and resources can allow them to make a better fist of this? There's two issues and they're sort of linked, I think. One is, whatever its other virtues, High Speed 2 is the largest infrastructure project in every sense in the country. And how do you convey what it's about to the general public. I think one of the, the the things I learned from campaigning for High Speed 2 all those years ago was that actually the government, in, in my estimation, was actually quite poor at explaining why it was that we needed this project. And, and unfortunately, one of the consequences of that is there does seem to be, at all levels of society, including in the cabinet, it would appear, people who seem to think that high-speed rail is just about conveying people in greater modernity and comfort between cities that already have rail connections, when in fact, if that's all it ever was, it would never have been given the time of day, if that's all it ever was about. And so I think there's a question of how do you really explain the benefits? And as, as someone who's who's actually had to try to do that, in a number of kind of business settings before, I'm going to I'm going to try and explain it as I understand it, and I think why I think it really matters to economic development. So, one way to think about high speed rail, I think, David, is is they are the motorways of the rail world, and if you think about what motorways are, 
they're not just a quick way of getting between two points. The impact of motorways is vastly larger than that because they've got all of that capacity. They're designed in a certain way to optimize for speed. So they're typically straight or gently curved. You don't have crossings over the top of them. Um, wide lanes, forgiving, big signs. You know, they're designed in a certain way to provide the maximum possible capacity and speed between places. And, you know, that isn't all that motorways do. You know, if you took away motorways from our country, what would happen? A lot of journeys simply wouldn't take place. All of those logistics facilities that are located where they are because they're in a node um, on the motorway network would simply cease to operate. Um, you'd have freight journeys that would be trundling. You'd get lorries trundling through residential streets. And of course, that would mean they would have to be much smaller and less efficient because of it. So the impact of having a motorway network is unbelievably large. It's so big, you can't really imagine it. Um, It's it's impossible to imagine a modern country these days without motorways. It's It's just not possible. Our lives are just too affected by it. Um, so if you can think about it that way, imagine that all of those type of benefits didn't exist. Um, it'd be it'd be very hard. And that's kind of that's the scale of the economic development impact that we're talking about. It's it's comparable to that. So to not build it is is absolutely gigantic. I mean, it really is. Um, if one part of the country, the Greater Southeast, is connected by high speed rail and another part of the country is not, um, That's that really is entrenching regional inequality, isn't it? I mean, that's guaranteeing it. Oh, no, absolutely. And and whilst, I mean, we spoke about Birmingham, there will be competitive benefits for Birmingham effectively becoming the fourth corner of the a quadrilateral of, of the Greater Southeast. The impact for other cities and other regions will be you know, absolutely shocking. Uh, and as I say, I mean, I think, you know, given where LED confidential focus is, the issue of local powers and resources to do strategic infrastructure you know, has to be revisited post whatever happens is a national failure. Um, and it does, again, segue into our final provocation when we talk about local power and resources, because you know, wasn't it nice in many ways to hear Andy Burnham, you know, in Greater Manchester, um, announcing the restarting, I guess, of a bus franchising system locally. What could we learn from that experience going forward? And I mean, all I will start with is, you know, given that we've come up at this from what local power and resources should local leadership teams have. It's clear to me that bus deregulation has been a huge failure. I'm not an expert on the history, but the deregulation of the 1970s outside London has led to plus or minus a 50% fall in bus patronage in the metros outside London at the same time whilst London regulated buses have more or less doubled in patronage over the same 40 years. So it has to be right for metro mayors to want to take on this power. I suppose the 
questions that we need to understand options and answers to better is you know, it seems to take a long time. And if you do get um, regulation back under local control, what can you actually do with it? I should just say bus franchising, it, what we're talking about here is a system in which um, a local council, local authority contracts with private bus operators to provide services according to a set of specifications that they have set out. So in other words, the council would set the routes, the fares, the timetables, standard of service, and so on, and the bus, bus operators would bid to run those services. That's kind of how it, what we mean by bus franchising. Why is it important to economic development? Well, fundamentally, because it allows um, local government to act strategically. So it allowed, it, it's easier to open up new sites for development, residential sites, if you're able, for instance, to get the services in ahead of time, things of that nature. So it allows you to act as a strategic economic authority by prioritizing areas for development in a way that might not necessarily be profitable in the short run, but helps you to develop your, your city or your town in the longer run. And that's not really possible, as you say, David, under bus deregulation, which has been the system that has operated for, for decades now, because essentially in that system, um, councils have only a kind of, well, indirect influence, I suppose, on where those bus routes are, which timetable, what their timetables um, are, and so on. And it was apparently for this reason and growing concern that we had the bus a Services Act in 2017. So going back a few years now to when the first attempts were made to really start to address these problems. And we had essentially the, the what that act allowed local government to do was introduce something that is known as enhanced partnerships, which is a sort of halfway house between the franchising model that you see in London and that you now see in Greater Manchester um, and the deregulation. So it gives councils more input, but it's not quite the full fat franchising model that Andy Burnham has brought in in Greater Manchester. And actually, if you look through the history of that process, it was a very long drawn out battle, really, with central government to obtain the powers to be able to intervene in the market in the way that bus franchising demands. So it's a big change in Greater Manchester. And interestingly, most other big cities in the UK, it seems, from recent news, are either considering bus franchising or actually quite far down the line of introducing it. So we're going to see this in more cities and probably quite soon over the next year or two. I think it will be really interesting for local economic development and placemaking practitioners as to how much they inform the strategic use of the power, um, as opposed to, you know, perhaps a more transactional approach about comfort, cost, quality of services, which are really important. You know, whether it's electric buses or whether it's, you know, I think Andy Burnham introduced the two pound maximum fare and so on. So I think there's going to be a balance between relatively transactional improvements in service quality and cost and more strategic use of bus to relate to other modes, 
um, and produce better places, better job opportunities, better business growth, and and so on. That's on the powers side. The resources side almost takes us full service back to Birmingham because you're right. I mean, the buses can contract for levels and types of service that will be provided. But, you know, if they are in administration from uh, the Department of Leveling Up Homes and Communities, will there be the resources available to contract strategic improvements in in services and i think that must be you know a major set of issues so we've almost come full circle and it depends as well of course who who is the contracting authority in that case in greater manchester it's been the mayoral authority that's really taken the lead in bringing forward that change and of course they have their transport for greater manchester their passenger transport executive um, so there's a, there's a question of kind of who gets to decide it and and how how does how does the the bankruptcy of one of the constituents of the combined authority um, affect that in a uh, city region? But I think I was I wanted to pick up your point, David, about the kind of the transactional improvements because I think that's a really good point because if you look at some of the mayoral elections of the past in London the quality and comfort of public transport features very heavily in those elections. And they haven't featured all that heavily, or at least less heavily, perhaps, in some of the other devolved city region areas. So are we likely to see, do you think, this, you know, a kind of almost a convergence in the style of campaigning and kind of the issues that crop up in a mayoral campaign in you know, um, South Yorkshire and West Yorkshire and Greater Manchester and you know, the West of England, all those other combined authorities. Are we likely to see, you know, the the, the political con- you know, politicians contesting each other on who can provide the most comfortable, most luxurious um, types of public transport? Because we see that in London. No, you're quite right. And I think we all are already seeing the beginnings of that, whether it's the Andy Burnham £2 fare. I know West Yorkshire has done some similar stuff. It will be a shame if it does come down to price, but I do accept that price, comfort, actually how green these things are, how they connect with other transport modes and um, and active transport are are really important. I think for our profession, making sure that the strategic agendas for growth and development are part of the considerations, you know, will be really important. Is that, is that a good place to, to wrap up? I, th- I, think it, I think it might be, David. Yeah, I mean, I think we've covered three absolutely huge issues. Interesting how related they are and how they do work seamlessly together. I mean, in some ways, it is quite a bleak month, you know, whether we're talking about Birmingham's Section 114 experience or indeed the HS2 and strategic infrastructure uncertainties. Within that, Greater Manchester's resumption of bus franchising is perhaps a small beacon of hope, but let's hope that there are many more and they are of even greater scale in the coming period. And who knows, by the time this goes live, we'll have more clarity about whether or not um, high-speed rail is going to expand further in the in the UK and whether 
there will be that uh, rail connection between Birmingham, new rail connection between Birmingham and the northwest of England. Let's leave it there. Thank you very much. I hope you've uh, enjoyed the listen. As ever, we will be delighted to hear from you on our website, ledconfidential.co.uk. Thank you.